Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Why don't we begin in prayer? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things the treasury of blessings and the giver of life. Come and dwell within us. Cleanse us of all stain and save our souls, O good one. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome back, Dr. Oshatz. Thank you. So good to be here again. Okay, I'm just going to start in, and it'll be kind of clear what the how the flow of this is going to go as I talk, I hope. I'm going to actually start with a question. Um, and I'm fully expected to be a pause after this question because uh, it's, it's not, it's one you might have to think about for a few seconds. So here's the question. Do we, and it's not entirely a fair question, it's a little bit of a trick question. Do we call things good and right because God declares them to be good and right? Or does God declare them to be good and right because they are good and right? Doctor, I love the question. Can you repeat it one more time so I can yeah, write it? Yeah, repeat it one more time. It's a little bit complicated. And I'll explain completely why I'm asking this question. Um, I just want to get some thoughts out there first. Do we call things good and right because God declares them? So God declares them to be good and right. Or does God declare things good and right because they are good and right? I've always understood that that's kind of the that was up for debate, like between the, the Thomas and then Duns Scotus. And it, I was always under the impression it was not fully defined whether it is one way or the other. I think my inclination is to say that something is good because God, well, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it could be both. <laughs> um, but I guess because God ordained something that makes it good. And I'll just second that, and there's a couple of comments in the chat. Because God made them, so therefore they must be good. Okay, so anyone else want to chime in? It's kind of a chicken or the egg thing, isn't it? That's what it's sounding like here. So this is a question. This is a famous question. It was posed in one of Plato's dialogues, the Euthyphro. And the, the, the Plato version uses the word pious, um, which is a, the, a Greek word that meant sort of all the things that gods allocate to and require of human beings. So it would include virtue, it would include right worship and all of that. And so the question that Euthyphro is, is what is pious loved by the gods because it's pious, or is it pious because it's loved by the gods? So where is goodness located? Is goodness primarily and you know, ultimately located in the all-powerful will of God? Or is it located in some objective reality that God acknowledges and confirms? Euthyphro, um, who's the character in question, he's the, the Platonic dialogue that's named after one of these, usually the character that Socrates takes down. Euthyphro would have made a great internet troll. Like, you, you can tell this guy is just really smug and self-righteous. And what Euthyphro is doing is Socrates bumps into him while he's in court. 
And Euthyphro, I mean, Socrates is in court for pretty serious reasons, as you might imagine. Euthyphro's there because he is bringing his own father to trial for murder. His father um, had some slaves, and one of the slaves killed another one of the slaves. And he wanted to punish, of course, the murder of the slave who committed the murder, but he couldn't deal with them right away. So his, Euthyphro's father tied up the slave or, and left him in a ditch um, to await punishment. Well, it turned out the slave who had murdered the other slave died of exposure before he could be punished. So Euthyphro is prosecuting his father for murdering the murderer. Euthyphro's family is livid. They think he's doing something horribly unpious because he's, he's turning against the father figure of the family. But Euthyphro is not concerned. He, he thinks that by prosecuting, prosecuting his own father, he's appealing to a higher standard of righteousness. He calls himself superior to the majority of men, which if you've read any Plato means he's about to be made mincemeat of by Socrates. Um, so there's a lot of back and forth, which uh, proves that Euthyphro has no idea what pious means. He can name individual acts of piety, but he has no idea what virtue or piety means. So then Socrates hits him with this dilemma. Is the pious loved by the gods because it's pious, or is it pious because it's loved by gods? I kind of got it the other way around that time. So does God conform to the moral order, or does he invent the moral order? Now, it's a dilemma which means that neither answer really works. Each answer has problems with it. So you kind of don't want to get gored on either horn of this bowl. If it's the first in this particular way I did it, if God loves what is virtuous because it's virtuous, if he conforms to the moral order, if he, if he acknowledges it and gives his assent to it, then there are moral standards or standards of virtue or piety that exist independently of God's will. And that would seem to mean that God isn't really completely free. He isn't actually omnipotent if he is limited by standards that exist apart from him. And so how is he really God if that's the case? So that's one horn of the dilemma that's icky. Then the other one, if it's the second, if what's virtuous is so because God wills it, then God gets his omnipotence, so that's good, but it's hard to see why we should care about what's virtuous. And it's hard to see how God has authority for us, it's arbitrary. Um, it seems like, okay, all that's moral, all that's good is just the result of, the, of a whim of an ultimately capricious being um, who could choose tomorrow if he wanted to make murder right. It's all up to him. And it seems like an arbitrary God like that would lack any necessary connection to goodness and therefore any authority in our lives. We, we give capricious tyrants authority only because they can kill us. But apart from that, not really. Um, likewise for morality. Why does morality really matter if it's rooted in whim, whether it's divine or, or human whim? So Euthyphro chooses option number one. He chooses to get gored on the first horn of the dilemma, which makes sense because he's in court, right? So he needs piety and morality to be something that can be rationally examined in a communal setting with reason. Um, he needs the will of the gods to be intelligible um, to the human mind, so it can factor in criminal trials. And if it were just a divine whim, then it wouldn't really help him get back at his family, basically. But um, he admits he can't really explain this. Um, and so the dialogue ends in um, aporia, which is a, a state of confusion, and we haven't we found the problem, but we don't have an answer. Why well, I'm starting with this dilemma today is I'm talking about the relationship between faith and reason, or mostly what reason is and how therefore it relates to faith. And this dilemma 
is really a dilemma about that relationship. So you think about it, it maps really well onto what happens when we put reason above faith and what happens when we take faith and make it completely above reason. So is, is, if what we call good and what we reason to be true is if it's all ultimately reducible to the will of God, then that means faith is predominant. Reason would exist just pretty much only to serve faith. Um, because you can only really know everything good, everything right, just traces back to the, to the will of God, um, which leads to fundamentalism, to fanaticism. Human reason is put in a very low place. On the other hand, is the good or the true is something that exists apart from the will of God, it seems to me that you might not necessarily need faith to access those things. Um, that would mean reason is predominant. And you can know the good, you can know the righteous, and you can know the true without faith entirely. So therefore, you would judge faith by the findings of reason. So it's the flip of the other. The first option, um, reason is judged in, by, by the terms of faith, and the second, faith is judged along the terms of reason. If the first leads to fanaticism and fundamentalism, the second leads basically to a dead faith, because it's not really necessary to live a good life. It's hard to see how it gives new life, how it is so foundational, and it leads to dying churches. So I think, you know, we've seen a lot of churches that um, spoke of reason and faith along these terms who uh, had empty pews. So neither of these is attractive. There's got to be a way out of this dilemma so that faith and reason aren't a zero-sum game, you know, that aren't opposed to each other with one inevitably sapping the strength and vitality and purpose of the other. I'm going to turn now to Pope Benedict XVI. He talked about this issue in a lecture at the University of Regensburg. It's often called the Regensburg Lecture. This was 2006. It's that lecture, if you remember, he, made, he said something that the press got really upset about because he spoke about a Muslim in, in the way past in slightly negative terms, but that wasn't what the point of the lecture at all. He begins this lecture by recounting this conversation from the 14th century between a Christian and a Muslim about compulsion and conversion. The Christian, who was a Byzantine emperor, argued there can't be any compulsion in a Christian conversion because, and this is as Pope Benedict is reading this conversation, failing to act in accord with reason is against God's nature. So then Pope Benedict XVI asks, is this true? Is there some necessary connection between reasonableness and godliness? Or is that just a Greek idea? Um, the preference of Plato and Aristotle, maybe Euthyphro, that kind of got glossed onto the church. He argues that it's true and that we can find in the Bible that there is a profound harmony between what is Greek in the best sense of the word and a biblical understanding of faith in God. He goes back to the Gospel of John. At the very beginning of the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the word. And this is logos, which means reason and living word. Um, in Pope Benedict's um, words, it's a reason that is creative and capable of self-communication as reason, like a living reason. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was God. So his point here is that Christianity from the very beginning was a rejection of mythological religion. If you think back to like, the Greek gods and goddesses, this is mythological religion, but you see it too in the Euthyphro Dilemma. It's a religion that exists in a realm totally removed from the human, human reason, from the concerns of human reason. The God's being totally apart from you. You have concerns totally alien to you. 
your own nature provides no clues or analogy to what these gods might be like. Um, and therefore, this is, these are gods or God who just have to be feared and maybe manipulated, but not trusted and not known in any way. Pope Benedict continues, as opposed to this, the faith of the church has always insisted that between God and us, between his, his eternal creator spirit and our created reason, there exists a real analogy in which unlikeliness remains infinitely greater than likeness, yet not to the point of abolishing analogy and its language. What he's saying here is we can't know God completely, of course, with human reason. We can't even come very close. <laughs> but we are not utterly cut off from God. There exists a real analogy between God and creation and between God and our nature, especially our created reason. God has revealed himself as logos. And as logos, that's reason and living word, he acts lovingly on our behalf. So love transcends thought alone, but our love is a love of a God who's logos. Therefore, Christian worship is in harmony with reason. We don't make God holier by pushing him away from us um, into what Benedict calls it sheer impenetrable voluntarism, making God into the God of the second, or whatever, the horn of the youth of Frodo Dilemma, where God, it's, it's right because God wills it to be so. Uh, making God super powerful so he can make anything right and he can make murder right. That doesn't make God more divine. It actually ignores the revealed truth about God's nature, which is revealed in creation, it's revealed in us, and it, of course, revealed in, in scripture. So, happy news. We can reject both sides of the Euthyphro dilemma. Our God neither conforms to nor invents the moral order. Rather, his very nature is the standard. St. Augustine's helpful here. He reminds us that we all desire good. No one sets out going, I really want evil today. You know, only like super, you know, things in comic books. People in comic books talk like that. But in fact, everyone who desires evil is mistakenly desiring it as good because we can't desire um, evil. Every sin is a longing for an ultimately unreal or false good. No one sins with full knowledge and ability. All sin reflects ignorance, limitation, and fallenness. But God has full knowledge and therefore by definition can't ever will anything but what is good. So that doesn't mean he's not free. For humans, we think of being able to sin as a sign of freedom, but really to will evil isn't freedom, it's error. It's limitedness, it's creatureliness, it's fallenness, it's our not being God that makes us capable of sinning. So God's inability to sin is a sign of his higher, true freedom. Um, so the divine will is, is the right standard of action by its very nature. So it's God's nature, not his will, that makes the good good. Um, what, what most ultimately is, which is God, simply is good and true. So no dilemma. That's St. Augustine's line on this. Um, so truth can't contradict truth. All truth is from God. Now that doesn't mean that faith and reason are just one big globby thing. Um, it doesn't mean all church doctrines are subject to proofs with reason, for instance. It just means that none of them can be unreasonable. You know, none of them can defy the laws of logic and so on. It also doesn't mean that we don't screw up. Reason errs all the time. It's a sharp sword, but the fall has weakened our ability to, to use it well. So this is the Christian resolution of the Euthyphro dilemma, and it gets carried forward in scholasticism, in medieval philosophy. 
which is the synthesis that happens between Greek philosophy and Christianity. Um, and of course, the, the big guy here is St. Thomas Aquinas. And here I'm going to go back to forms, which I talked about last week. So if you weren't here last week, bear with me a little. Um, I'm going to review some of the metaphysics. Scholasticism had a realist metaphysics, which can mean various things. The key point here are forms. Um, the belief that when we perceive and understand and use words to talk about things, we're accessing forms. Remember I talked about forms, starting with the table. The form is what makes a table have tableness <laughs> and not just be a stack of wood. Um, and as human beings, we have substantial forms which unite us into one purpose and give us our telos and make us one thing. Forms are what makes something a something or a someone. Um, okay, so forms exist only as they characterize individual things, remember, but they're essential in accounting for the intelligibility of reality and our mind's ability to grasp things in reality and have them in our mind. When we see a dog, for instance, we know it is a dog because we grasp its form. And so when we grasp that form, the form's in the dog and it's also in our mind. It's the same thing. It's in, in our mind as an intelligible form and it's in the dog as an instantiated form. But that accounts for how the, our mind reliably represents the world. It accounts for the intelligibility of the world, for the ability of our mind to abstract reality and for our mind's intrinsic connection to reality. Um, scholasticism's belief in forms meant that the essence of things are built into their existence by God. As we saw our discussion of substantial forms, that is again, uh, something that, a form that makes something a living thing, one substance whose parts are organized into one internal purpose. As we saw that, this means that we have a nature, an inherent purpose, an inherent telos, one that comes from and points back to a transcendental order. And it means, so altogether, that creation is not completely comprehensible, but it is open to our minds. It is rationally ordered by God, and it's a revelation of God, and it is open to the human mind. We can't know God entirely, but God's nature isn't shut off from ours entirely either. What's most true and real is an alien. It's knowable in part through reason in our study of creation. So knowledge of truth brings us closer to God. Reason and faith work together in tandem. It might be helpful here to bring in Pope St. John Paul II. So this is another quick little quote. Um, this is from his encyclical on faith and reason. Faith and reason are like two wings on which the human spirit rises to the contemplation of truth. And God has placed in the human heart a desire to know the truth and a word to know himself. So that by knowing and loving God, men and women may also come to the fullness of truth about themselves. So that's the vision. It's lovely, right? So what the heck happened? Our culture, what are some simple, just quickly, when you hear people say faith and reason in our culture, what, what sort of ideas do you hear thrown around? How do they work together? Are they opposites? Or are they, do they work in tandem? Do so you want to have a, a quick observation there? They're kind of expected to be compartmentalized. Yes. You, you can have faith, but it's separate from reason, and you, you can't have them at the same time. And then there's this idea that it is a conflict, but we'll allow you to have it as long as you keep it separate. Right. Because you can't, we don't take it that seriously because it's separate from reason, right? So, yeah, exactly. So our culture, sometimes, it either speaks of reason as something that's opposed to faith, like faith is just not really a reasonable thing, or just something totally separate. So reason investigates practical, material subjects, 
and doesn't talk to us about things that are of higher matters, can't really access them. Faith, those are in the faith compartment, but again, that's not really reasonable. So separate corners for both. I think it might be helpful here to distinguish between two kinds of reason, instrumental reason and substantive reason. Um, the first is flourishing and has ever since the age of reason, um, which I'll talk about that term more, uh, or the scientific revolution, the age of enlightenment. Instrumental reason is what it sounds like. It's reason as used as an instrument, used as a tool to accomplish already predetermined ends. So say I want to get a job. I use instrumental reason to figure out what I could do to get that job. I feel like coffee. I use instrumental reason to figure out where my closest Starbucks is and get there, and so on. Instrumental reason is reasoning is flourishing, especially in the sciences and technology. Um, it serves ends, some of which might be great, some of which might not be great. It's not concerned with the ends. It's the instrument. Um, the power of this sort of reason has given us many wonderful things. I mean, I think off the top of our heads, dishwashers, antibiotics, um, surgical anesthesia, you know, great. But we have to admit it's also given us nuclear weapons and so on. It's just unconcerned with ends. The age of reason, again, I'm using scarecrow, augmented the place of instrumental reason in human life, but it diminished substantive reason. You can probably guess what substantive reason is from the context. If instrumental reason, reasoning is reasoning about means, substantive reason is reason about ends. So instrumental reason asks how. Substantive reason asks why and what. What is our purpose as human beings? Why are we here? Why does anything exist? What is true? What is good? What is the beautiful? There's this consensus in the West that we can't get any traction with these questions with reason. They might be important. I mean, they're undeniably important. But because reason can't get anywhere with them, they're a matter for faith, personal preference, working apart from reason. So somewhere along the line, we lost sight of the Christian resolution of the Euthyphro dilemma. We no longer, as a civilization, operate under the shared assumption that we can reason about ultimate matters. So we, again, just like Jen said, separate corners for faith and reason to the diminution of both. Reason's diminished because it is left unable to talk about the really big questions, right? We're not bringing it to the table to talk about what we are as human beings and what this life is about and what it looks like to flourish as a human society. Faith is diminished because if we can't reason about matters regarding faith together, it becomes private and even kind of mystical and um, ineffable, something that's felt rather than discussed, and that's not good for faith. So today I'm going to talk now, I'm going to turn to talking really briefly about how this happened, um, and then I'll end by, I hope we can all join in there if it's time, thinking of ways to recover a fuller and more godly use of reason in our Catholic faith. So I'm going to, these are kind of complicated figures. I'm going to try to do this clearly and well and briefly. Um, we've got Occam, Descartes, and Kant. And I'm, this is going to be a shortened version, so um, it's a little simplified, but I hope it will whet your appetite for more. First, William of, of Occam. So he's born in 1285, it's quite a long time ago. So he does his work in the early 14th century. He was a Franciscan from Britain, and he takes on scholastic metaphysics and replaces it with something called nominalism. I'll explain why as we, we get there. He didn't think that forms were necessary. He thought they were redundant, that you didn't need to posit forms. And he thought the idea of forms, 
and this is the Aristotelian idea that's in Aquinas too, or nature's essences, that these things constricted the will of God unnecessarily. So remember, scholasticism, Aristotle, Aquinas, right? requires that in addition to talking about individual beings, I can talk about other things. I can talk about forms, universal natures, essences, which although they don't exist independently, like floating around as blobs out there, they have real meaning and real consequences. They make a big difference in our understanding of reality. Instead of all of that, Occam's like, you don't need that. It's like another thing you're positing in addition to what's right in front of your face. So drop it. So instead of having our mental representations or our words refer to forms or natures, Occam insisted when we use words to talk about things or when we imagine them in our head, we are always talking about individual beings. So for example, if I say man, it doesn't signify the humanity of individual beings, but just the individual beings themselves. There's nothing to talk about or represent but individuals. Now, he thought the main problem with this is it constrained the will of God. So he's going back to the Euthyphro dilemma and saying, no, it's right because God wills it. He's being gored on that dilemma, on that horn of the dilemma. So rather than willing good out of his very nature here, Occam has God willing the good, which means it's totally determined by God's will and not knowable by reason. So God and his creation, this is um, Occam's totally omnipotent God. He's totally unbound by what he's already created. So there are no immutable forms. There are no natures that uh, we can understand and rely upon and access except through revelation. Everything are just contingent creations of God will, God's will. They don't have meaning built in that's um, immutable. They don't have intrinsic meaning. All of their meaning is added on, pasted onto the outside by God. It's extrinsic to them. There are no universal natures. Things just happen to apply to each individual thing, and those things can change. They are not necessary or enduring parts of reality. So when we talk about universals, we're just using convenient fictions. They're convenient linguistic tools. They're names, hence the word nominalism. That's what it comes from. Okay, boring metaphysics, but why? What does this matter? This has huge implications for what reason can do. Um, since every individual being here is totally contingent on God's will, you can't really know anything about creation without just experimenting on individual specimens of creation. You can't understand nature without investigating the phenomena directly. So you, all you have are the data of the concrete experiential facts before you and the words of revelation. If you think a little hard about it, eventually you're not going to have the words of revelation either because God could change his mind now. Um, so there's no intrinsic connection of intelligibility between the world out there and a the human mind. Hopefully it's becoming a little clear why Occam's the bad guy. There's a, a quote from Etienne Gilson, who's a, a scholar of medieval philosophy, wrote that as a philosopher, it was Occam's privilege to usher into the world what I think is the first known case of a new intellectual disease. So let me just throw this out there just for a few minutes. Is there any, what do you think might, might be the problem here? Do you see any problems here? Andrew, do you see a problem? I mean, just off the top of your head. Why is it a disease? <laughs> uh, well, because now you're elevating man as the, the one who can dictate what is knowable or not knowable or what truth is and what isn't truth. And, you know, whatever God does is whatever God does. And that's, as you were saying before, it's 
if God can change his mind on a whim, then, you know, why, why even bother? At least in science, right? We can measure something and it's repeatable. Right. And that's a good point. And that's, that's where I need, I need to get to, because we, we think about this often as the, um, the metaphysics underlying the scientific revolution. And it is in one sense, because it drives everyone to experimentation, but it isn't in another sense, because yeah, it could change from now to the next moment. So this is kind of an intellectual disease that, that takes hold, and it turns out it's pretty contagious. So the church was onto this guy. So he's censured in 1326. He's repeatedly condemned from 1339 to 1347, but his influence grows. And like 150 years after his death, nominalism is one of the most powerful intellectual movements in Europe, helped along by historical events. There was an even more contagious disease. Anyone recalls what that was? Bubonic plague, right? Wipes out a third to a half of Europe. Um, also the Hundred Years' War. So you can, maybe you can imagine a world in which half of the people around you die as a world where you maybe are not thinking of God as a logos. And you're, you're maybe open to thinking of God as a capricious deity who is not making much sense and isn't terribly available to human reason. So um, I think there's a historical, oh, you know, the bubonic plague is relevant here. But anyway, one more thing about nominalism. Recall, forms explain how the mind grasps the world. So if you get rid of forms, it's hard to explain how we have an intrinsic connection to the world. Concepts formed by the mind about things if you have an idea of forms, are causally connected to those things and have this intrinsic logical connection to them. So you can have your concepts can be mistaken, but you can be confident that what your intellect grasps is reliably related to a world out there. It's probably safe to say that no one, no one prior to Occam in medieval Europe sat up late at night wondering if all of the reality was actually a hallucination produced by an evil demon. But you get rid of forms, and someone does that, name Rene Descartes. So philosophy starts to head in that direction. How do I know there's anything outside of my mind? How do I know I'm not just dreaming? And that's partially because, you, well, it's largely or entirely because you've gotten rid of forms. So Rene Descartes, 1596 in France is when we're, we're in when he's born. He's born in the midst of the scientific revolution. Um, and a quick point, because Andrew mentioned this, there's no direct, you can't go Occam, Descartes' scientific revolution for this reason, that nominalism does make way for the scientific revolution because it disconnects investigation of the material world from theology and metaphysics and all of that controversy. All of that is irrelevant because you can't say anything about it, really. So you just investigate the material world. Um, you block reasons, other pathways, and direct all its energies to investigation and observation whether of revelation or of the natural world. And you can see this effect in Francis Bacon, who was a contemporary of Descartes, and he's the founder of the modern scientific method. And so he writes that science, reason, should be applied to basically to torture nature into revealing her secrets, is what he says, to improve the lives of human beings by examining nature until she reveals her secrets. So not to contemplate nature, not to contemplate creation, not to arrive at ultimate truths, but to master and manipulate. Um, the physical world for the sake of, of human well-being. But to really do science, you've got to break with nominalism. Otherwise, you can't discover a physical law because everything could be changed tomorrow. You have to rely only on what's right in front of you. And at any moment, God could change the rules. So nominalism can't really get past hypotheses. Descartes wants a lot more than hypotheses. Descartes wants to gain for philosophy the certainty of math of two plus two equals four. You know, all our ideas about God, oh, so vague, so up for debate. 
let's bring the certainty of everything we really need to know to the level of math, to that kind of certainty. That's what Descartes wants. So this is a departure from nominalism, of course, because math is not a matter of individuals. <laughs> it's math is universals. But Descartes didn't want to return to scholastic realism. And this is also kind of a historical point. So in his days, looking at all the given authorities completely failing to maintain peace and concord uh, and to agree upon just the basic metaphysical realities of the world. So there's a sense, there's on the one hand, a sense of innocence because he's still in, in, in Christian Europe, right? And um, he's not, he's at the very beginning of the modern world. But on the other hand, there's a sense that no, it, it, it's fallen apart. Um, we need to rebuild and we need to rebuild on this foundation that no one can disagree about, that we can't have wars about, that we can't fight about anymore. Um, so Descartes thought, let's start with math. And of course, that's, you know, Cartesian coordinate system, that's Descartes. He was a mathematician. Math teaches us about absolute certainty. And math introduces us to knowledge we gain through understanding rather than through senses, and our, because our senses can fail. This is weird, though. Math is a really weird grounding for our relationship with reality. Before Descartes, this is why it's so important, metaphysics had gone from being, like what's out there, to thought. So we begin with knowledge, with the mind grasping reality. That's where metaphysical realism, as in scholasticism, begins. It begins with things. Reality is taken to be out there. We just assume that. And it's the job of reason to understand it and to get a hold on what nature is about. But if you model it, you're thinking on math. Math doesn't work that way. Math goes the other way. Math goes from thought to things, not things to thought. I mean, maybe for a young child, it goes from counting your apples. But math starts with, th with thought and then goes to things. So when you model metaphysics on that, you begin everything with thought, with radical subjectivity, with what's in your head already, and therefore with doubt. With doubt that what's in your mind is really connected to the world out there. Doubt you can trust common sense. Doubt you can trust your senses. Doubt that you can trust the traditions of everyone that came before you and the thousands of years of culture around you. So Descartes' meditations begin with Descartes meditating about Descartes. There's a backstory really quickly. He served in the military. And as a youth serving in the military, he was cold, I guess, and he ended up in a walk-in walk furnace, kind of like a superheated room. And he fell asleep and I got this vision. It, you know, it could have been exhaustion and, and being overheated. And in this vision, a divine spirit comes to him and says, I want you to establish a totally new philosophical system, Rene, all your own. You're going to start the, the world off on a new foundation. So he goes, he leaves the military, he spends 20 years as a hermit in Holland. He ends up being summoned to tutor queen, the Queen of Sweden and dies of pneumonia. But here he is in Holland in this work, this famous work, his meditations. And he's alone by his fire and he tries to determine what he can know with perfect certainty, starting in his own head kind of certainty with which he knows two plus two is four. And he concludes that this is really nothing about reality he can't doubt. But he keeps kind of like recapturing common sense, like a bad habit. So as an experiment, he posits this evil demon who is always trying to deceive him. And then he asks, what could I still know with absolute certainty if I'm continually being deceived by an evil demon? And here you do see nominalism, right? It's this way of making a point that if you lose that hold on that mind's intrinsic connection to reality, on nature's an essence and a knowable creation, then you're left with a subjective standpoint. And from that standpoint, you don't have any guarantee that your present experience is any more than just fleeting and insubstantial illusions. 
How do you know it's based in an enduring reality? So he says, let's assume I'm being deceived by this demon. What can I still know? And that's where he gets the famous line, the Gita Ergo Sum. I know, I think, therefore I am. So even if I'm doubting, I'm still thinking. And even if any demon is deceiving me, it's deceiving someone. So it's thinking. It's that act of thinking that makes him know that he exists. Doubting the proposition I'm thinking actually confirms it because it's still a form of doubt. So according to Descartes, you get to reality through your thoughts and you don't assume anything you can't prove. So you scrap it all. Let's scrap it all. Let's scrap the full edifice of European rationality, Christianity, culture, and rebuild it on new solid ground, which makes us cringe because we're post-Stalin with don't do that. But Descartes was super optimistic. This was going to go great. So from the bare foundation of I think, he goes about rebuilding belief in God based on various arguments, the existence of God, which I don't have time to go into. And then proceeds henceforth on the assumption that because God exists and God's not a deceiver, that any clear and distinct idea he has must be trustworthy and a guide to reality. And he just like soldiers on. I love early modern Europe because there's a combination of radical destruction and just total optimistic, you know, we'll just be fine doing it this other way. So he goes about kind of rebuilding the accomplishments of scholasticism, but it turns out you can't really do that on the ground of pure individual subjectivity. Because the foundation for philosophy, especially Catholic philosophy, isn't, I think, it's things exist. So it's things are, therefore I think. We reach knowledge of self through knowledge of the created world, through knowledge of being. Um, so when, when all of that is scrapped, and you begin by turning inward and examining reality through the pinhole of your own awareness, of your own thinking, um, reason's field of vision gets really focused, but it very narrowed. Um, and you lose that, what Etienne Gilson calls, reasons living accord with reality. Um, after Descartes, as history marches on, people get a lot less optimistic about the ability to build a rich medieval cosmology from the bare ground of subjectivity, which brings us to Kant, my last one, and then we'll think about what we could go from here. So Descartes also wants to get to solid ground, um, but he, he doesn't believe that our, we have innate ideas that lead us to reality. He didn't think we could possess metaphysical knowledge at all about things like God, souls, substances, um, the afterlife. He didn't think we could have knowledge about anything beyond the empirical. Kant is, was an 18th century Enlightenment philosopher. He defined the Enlightenment. He, one of the rare definitions of the Enlightenment was his, which is the Enlightenment is man's release from his self-incurred tutelage and his self-incurred being a student. It's so man's release from just taking the authorities that be at their word and learning to think completely for himself. But he didn't think that our minds could grasp, that reason could grasp anything that completely transcended experience. Our minds, for Kant, structure reality so that experience is meaningful, but we can't know um, anything but phenomena. So we can know how things appear to us and to our minds, but we can't know what he calls the noumena, which are the things that are out there, things in and, in and of themselves, not, perceived, not as perceived by the human mind. So he thinks mind so structures reality that you can only know the reality that is a phenomenon to your mind, not things in themselves. So if things like God, the afterlife, the meaning of human life, if those exist, which they probably do, they lie beyond experience and therefore beyond knowledge. And yet, Kant admits, we still need many of these beliefs. 
So in order to connect morality to happiness, for instance, I don't have time to go into Kant's morality and his understanding of ethics, but um, in order to connect being good, doing the right thing to happiness, he thought you needed belief in God and the afterlife. And in order to make sense of your lives, you need belief in free will. But again, you can't reason to those. There's no path for Kant out of the mind to the things in themselves. So for Kant and then after Kant, reasons reaching after ultimate truths isn't a matter of knowledge, which he holds to be impossible, but practicality. They're just certain things you need to believe in order to overcome selfishness, live in community, and get up in the morning. But you can't know these things. It's not pop because it's not possible to know them through experience, and reason cannot, for Kant, supply knowledge in the place of experience. So he, like Descartes, he's starting from sort of locked into the mind, what can we know? And we can't get to those things themselves if we start locked into the mind. So um, reason here has become not so much about knowledge, it's about making peace with our role in the world. When it comes to the transcendental, so that's the true big T, the good with the big G, the beautiful with the big B, reason's role for Kant, I'm going back to those terms I mentioned before, is instrumental, not substantive. So it can't get to what they are, but it sees their usefulness as tools, right? We believe in these things, the true, the good, the beautiful, not as real substantive ends that we can grasp with our minds, but because they serve our predetermined ends, to live orderly lives, to get along with each other, to be happy, um, to believe that we have free will. Right? We value these things because they work for us. Hence our talk of values. No one in the classical or medieval world would have spoken of moral values. Values are what happens to transcendentals, the good, the true, and the beautiful, when they're no longer connected to knowledge when there's no longer a path from reason to them. Values are not things to be reasoned about. Values are things to be felt and possessed. Um, and they have a holy aura that's sort of left over from a richer metaphysical time, but we can't account for it with, with modern metaphysics. So the enlightenment is spoken of as the age of reason. And I'd say it'd be more accurate to call it the age of proof or the age of instrumental reason. So since Occam, Descartes, and Kant, uh, when we speak of reason, we tend to mean reason engaged in finding certainty, as in Descartes, through proof, or reasoning to build institutions, to build technologies that make us, that serve predetermined ends that we can't debate through reason, like being more powerful, being more wealthy, being more comfortable. We mean a reason that's really good with means and uninterested in ends. Reason that's effective in terms of science, technology, discovery, development, far less effective when talking about moral reasoning or, or the discovery of human purposes. It's not that the Enlightenment was opposed to faith exactly. Almost all these guys were believers, and you know, Descartes was Catholic. But it did exclude claims about God from reason in the end and denied the intrinsic connection between our minds and an intelligible created order. And that form of reason, this is where I'm concluding and, and becoming more practical, affects how we see our faith and our own engagement with each other. If we believe as a society that the big questions, you just can't reason, can't get any traction on those um, because their answers aren't subject to proof, we stop taking them seriously. We stop discussing them. Matters of ethics, fundamental beliefs about what is good, 
and what is ultimately true become purely personal and lose their power to create and sustain communities and discussions about the common good. We become more isolated from each other. We can't discuss and share fundamental understandings of reality. We understand all talk about what you should do as essentially talk about power, about individual wills butting up against each other, because that's where all of this stuff ends up being located, an individual will, not in reality out there. We distrust each other. And when we think about reasoning about higher things, especially as Catholics, as Christians, we get anxious. What if I can't prove what I believe? What if I can, can't convince those who see it the other way because I can't prove anything? Faith without reason is puny and distorted and dangerous. And reason without faith is myopic and dangerous. <laughs> so what to do? Answering that question completely as well above my capabilities as a human being. This is a really, really big wheel to turn. Um, and we can't just go back to a pre-reformation days when as a society we could find widespread metaphysical agreement without proof. But, okay, three quick things, and I'll open it to discussion and questions. Three suggestions. One, don't be Kant's enlightenment figure. Do not yearn to be released from a self-incurred tutelage Stay in your tutelage if you are a member of the Catholic Church, right? You have access to this amazing wealth of material. So get in touch with the fullness of your tradition and its use of reason. Do not be uh, afraid of binding yourself to the traditions of the past because a faith in proper relationship to reason actually enlarges your capacity to reason rather than constricting it. It allows you to see more, to reason about more, to live and act in a fuller and deeper and more humane reality. Like you, you can't, for instance, flourish as a human being without thinking about reasoning about what it means, as we did last week, right, to be a human being. Two, build deep, not too diverse communities around yourself. So build deep, smaller communities of faith around yourself with people wh whom you do share some metaphysical assumptions with. And informed by faith, have those deep reason conversations about living a full and good human life. Live in communities in which the true and the good and the beautiful are more than values. You can't give what you don't have. And finally, in your conversations with people outside of those communities, don't be anxious about proof. There are so many truths that can't be proven, arguably all of the important ones. And love can't be proven. Ask deeper better questions. Prod those around you to think and reason about questions whose answers are not subject to proof. Don't do this in a spirit of combativeness or you know, to, to, to get points, but in a spirit of curiosity. We're all made inherently to seek the true and the good and the beautiful. And in helping others do that, even when you think, oh, that didn't go well, oh, maybe I didn't say the right thing, I didn't convince them. Just by doing that, you're doing a great service. And you're planting the seeds that God made you to plant. So um, I'm going to conclude there next week. We'll talk about human communities and political philosophy and what substantive reason looks like when brought to human society. Um, so thank you for that. And I welcome your questions. Thank you so much, Molly. That was wonderful. Um, we do have some questions coming on in here. One person wanted clarity on the third bullet under Occam on the handout. What does it mean that it was made way for the scientific revolution. Right. So I said a little bit that it, it, helped me, it helped me a little more clear. So prior to Occam, there, there was this sort of staleness maybe to very, you know, late um, medieval 
metaphysics that kind of lock down certain questions by making them, if you were going to investigate the natural world, it inevitably involved you in metaphysical and theological controversy because there was such a robust use of substantive reason that anything you said, <laughs> and scientific claims were not um, separate from metaphysical and theological claims. So after Occam, they're sheared off right? Because you can't judge from looking at an individual specimen. That's not going to involve you in metaphysical controversy because there's, there's no link to the rest of the world from that individual specimen. So now you can um, research the physical world and you're not doing substantive reason. You're not doing metaphysics. You're not doing philosophy. You're not saying anything about God. You're just saying something about this insect right before you and just that insect, not even insects in general. Um, so it in a way frees um, experimentation and gets it out of the hands of a, of a church and just so it gives it sort of not a breath of fresh air but it disconnects it and focuses it um so again it's that instrumental reason divorced from substantive reason goes to town right so you get an, an enormous rush of discovery but again ultimately nominalism too would also kill science because you can't say anything about what will happen with this insect tomorrow god could change it so you can't do, you can't get past hypotheses so people like newton um descartes do something different than nominalism but the the destruction of nominalism is still undergirding that thank you do any of our panelists have a question at this time yeah i was going to ask you know it's interesting we've had a couple of chinese exchange students come and live with us and so coming from their culture, you know, this idea from Occam of, you know, Occam's razor of the simplest answer is the, is the best way to go. Right. They very much live in that very narrow world of, you know, I go to school, I go to school, I go to school. That's all I do. Mom said I have to go over here, so now I go over here. And, you know, maybe, you know, the boss says I go here, I go there. There seems to be very much a narrow focus. And I think it might be the best cultural example of your point about when you're just focused on investigating one thing, that's all you're going to do. And that's all they want you to do. And so you give into that. And that's, it's funny enough, our latest Chinese uh, exchange student has really hit a real dilemma because, you know, you start to talk about God and she goes to a Christian church and her mind starts to open up, but then she'll turn around and it'll be, no, I got to go to school. Mom said, I got to go to school. I got to do this. Yeah. So right. is that, is that yeah. something you've experienced? And is that a fair example of what you're, you're trying to get across? Exactly. I mean, there's almost like a madness to it. I mean, if you just look around at our culture, right? Like we're really good at absurdly specific things. We're good at, you know, internet search engines. And we just celebrate, you know, with such excitement these victories and progressing along this incredibly narrow band of what human beings should do. And meanwhile, you know, suicide rates are up, mental illness rates are up, substance abuse, like screaming problems all around us. Like, ah, you know, see, we're not flourishing. We are not fulfilling ourselves as humans, but it's almost, you know, we have the blinders of only using instrumental reason on. So we're after GDP, you know, growth and GDP. We're after, you know, these just markers of my mama told me something like, no, this is what I was raised to do. This is what it means to succeed. This is what it means to succeed. And it's an idol, ultimately. It, it's worshiping an idol. So I, I think that that's a, just enormous thing to bring people back to their humanity by asking these questions. And by doing, that's what the liberal arts are for. And, and it's, it's such a shame they're getting crushed. It's for that discipline of returning wow. to the big question. And they're getting crushed by the 
like you said before, prove your success. I mean, I drive by the Catholic high school all the time, you know, $37 million raised and, you know, blah, blah, all the statistics that they're trying to prove that yes. going here is worth the money. Right, exactly. It's all subject to proof. If it's not subject to proof, then, oh, yeah, it's not reasonable. It's a whim. It's, it's your private preference. So that's that dividing. And you see it in textbooks, too. Um, even a textbook my daughter had in a Catholic elementary school, fact versus opinion. Fact is everything you can prove. Everything else is opinion, which is complete hooey, obviously. I mean, there, there are so many truths you can't prove. And you can, you can illustrate this to a third grader. Oh, oh, prove your mom loves you. I'm not saying it. <laughs> so um, it, it, it's a bizarre understanding of reality, really. Um, one person has asked if you could talk about the connection between nominalism and voluntarism. Right. Okay. So voluntarism is, um, I mentioned that, you know, for, for Aquinas and for St. Augustine, they're talking about the nature of God. For uh, Occam's talking about the will of God. So the connection there is that um, he's concerned that any, when you talk about the nature of God, that you're, you're limiting God in some way. So God is not this, he's this. And God is not ugly, he's beautiful. And God is not, you know, the, he's this. So if you just focus on the will of God and being, that being ult completely unlimited, um, that's how Occam thinks of his thinking as, as bringing more divinity to God, more power to God. Which, and we've talked about, I talked about how that's really not the case in the Catholic tradition. Um, so that's a connection. And it ends up, um, that voluntarism, we see not just then in nihilism's talk of God, but we see as that pay, plays forward in culture, that becomes how we think about human beings too. So instead of talking about ourselves as, as people who have these substantial forms, who have this nature and this essence, who have humanity, even if it's broken, we talk about individual will as being the sacrosanct thing. That's the thing that can't be violated apart from injury to others, um, which I'll talk more about next week. But um, that voluntarism starts off as a theory about God, as a way of, of making God more powerful by getting him further from us. And it ends up isolating ourselves from each other because we don't share a common nature. We each have our separate little individual wills and that's where our morality, that's where our values are ultimately grounded. So when we talk about higher things um, and we don't agree with each other, well, we're, we're arguing about power. So that also, I think, accounts for a lot of the, um, we're getting way off track here, but a lot of the contentiousness and the, you know, of, of modern debates and the need for safe spaces and so forth. Thank you. There was one person who was wondering um, if you could clarify, she said that earlier tonight, um, did you say that we can't, can't or don't choose evil because it is evil, that when we said we were looking for the good, does right. that contradict our understanding of mortal sin? I was thinking the same thing when I was um, writing that. Like, huh, I wonder, like, uh, it, I, I'd like to read more about that. I'm not entirely sure. I mean, I can't, right? <laughs> if it's true. But, yeah, I think that's probably a matter of degrees. So it's true that if you are all-knowing and you are not fallen, then you simply cannot will what turns out to be evil. So any act of willing evil, um, it's not just like, oh, I didn't know. It's that there's something broken about your capacities and broken about your reasoning. Um, that being said, um, if we could just throw up our hands every time that were the case, like, eh, you know, I'm an idiot. Um, <laughs> we don't have sufficient moral responsibility to grow in faith and to, to build a human society, right? So there is a line there where if you could reasonably, you know, given what we do know about human nature, have known the gravity of the situation and the fact of it's, of it's being wrong, then you're responsible for it. So I think there's like a, a sort of a, a practical ethics and then a larger philosophical point there. I'm not exactly sure where they rub together. I was just thinking I would like to read more about that myself. Thank you.
Um, there was one question that I actually wanted to pull up that was from last week. Um, Kelly had asked, where did the idea of us being ghosts and machines come from? Did it start with Descartes or Rousseau? Exactly. It starts with Descartes. So Descartes is a dualist. So it, it, when we, I talked last um, time about um, human beings being this you know, combination, this um, composite of form and matter. So Descartes, and you can tell this even in kind of what we discussed, what I talked about today, identifies himself as this thinking thing, um, not as his body. Um, and he is, does not find knowledge through the senses. So what's true, what's most true for him, what's most him is the soul that is a distinct substance from the body. So Descartes says there are two distinct substances, there's soul and there's body. And we're somehow linked, but you never get the sense of Descartes that, I mean, he tries to explain, but it's, it's rather puny. You don't get the sense why we couldn't just walk away from our body as a soul at any point, because they're separate substances. So it's, it's unclear how they're so bound. It's unclear even how to um, account for, say, sens sensory knowledge, which is partially mental and partially physical. So yes, that starts with Descartes. Yeah, I don't know where else to get that. Yeah, the ghost in the machine is from there. And that kind of relates to what we talked about last week, that we have this weird combination of materialism, um, which doesn't allow for that form of dualism. Materialism is a form of monism. We are just bodies. And yet we also speak as dualists often. Like, I'm really my inner self, and I just kind of wear the bodysuit. So, yeah, that can be traced back to all right. Thank you so much, Molly. Um, I think we're going to need to conclude it here tonight, but um, I will finish actually with this one question. Uh, Ray was wondering, what order would you recommend reading the suggested further reading? Oh, this is great. Okay. Um, this is for today. Well, the one that's most related to what I talked about is actually the last one, the Regensburg Lecture, which I quoted from already. So he has a kind of different chronology of this, but that's the one that's kind of most nitty gritty, you know, close to what I was doing. Rod Dreher is if, you, if you'd like a really quick, like this chapter, like a 15-page overview of all of this stuff so that you can, go, you, know, so you can go back through and kind of reference it, and you might be reading this book anyway, he does this. But it's very simplistic. It's very quick because it's just one chapter of the book. I just love this essay from Chesterton, The Maniac, and it, I didn't get to quote it because I ran out of time and space to do that. But um, it's about how um, when reason on its own um, is actually, you know, is associated with insanity. And it, but it's, it has this beautiful, wonderful um, images for evaluation between faith and reason. So it's less directly connected to my talk. It's just um, a beautiful read on the subject. Well, thank you very much, Molly, um, and have a good evening. Thank you all. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.